You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is Mike Harding of Touch. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. We uh, we actually met at Touch's 40th anniversary event here in Los Angeles at 2220 Arts and Archives. We did. You were the troglodytes underground. That's true. We were, And I was trying to get everybody to go up above the surface to do various uh, activities that we had planned. But absolutely, I do remember it well. Yeah, Certainly. we were hiding in the basement and we talked to uh, Mickey von Hauswolf there, which was yep. very wonderful, uh, wonderful chat with him. And we talked then about uh, we had to have you on the podcast. I mean, Touch has been around for 40 years now, put out a plethora of things, some of which we've discussed on the podcast, like the Ghost Orchid CD, but also having people like Jacob Kierkegaard and CM von Hauswolf, uh, John Duncan on the podcast. It's, of course, these are all artists that have released on Touch over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So you started in, in 1981. Well, the, uh, the idea of Touch was conceived in 81 and actually gave birth in 82. So John Wozencroft, who is the guiding light, the spirit uh, of the thing, um, corrects me when I veer too far one way or the other off the, off the Touch road. Um, he actually was at university with him way back in the north of England, but I never met him there, but I knew about him because he would put gigs on for the students' union. So he got wire up and various other... And I used to go to some of the gigs, and but it was only afterwards in London uh, we met at a venue called the Moonlight Club, and there he was. And I, I went up to him and I went, "Aren't you Johnny Weissmuller?" Because I couldn't remember his name because his name's John Wozencroft, and all mm-hmm. I could get out was Johnny Weissmuller, who you're too young to remember played Tarzan in some movies in the fifties. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and so he looked at me like, "Who is this Burke?" And then we kind of. Um, caught up and uh, put it right. And then he told me about this idea he had. And it was basically that at the time, there were cassettes and vinyl, right? And he felt that cassettes were being underutilized as as an art format, as as an art product, and that people weren't experimenting enough with the audio and certainly were not experimenting with the visual aspects of, of of the form, which are very, well, I mean, it's plastic. It's very kind of, it's an arid environment really to put anything on so you have to put it with something else so john wanted to explore uh, the publishing aspect of this uh, and doing it with a, with a booklet with visuals of some kind which would contain artworks writings you know images that kind of thing mm-hmm. and he would edit them all together into this coherent uh, event and i thought this was a great idea and of course then he said and of course i haven't got any money so <laughs> I kind of knew immediately my place. Um, and I, I set up the structure around which I felt this would operate best, which gave us the freedom of movement to experiment without being really constrained, you know, by debt. Because don't forget then, and it's a period we're heading into now, interest rates were really, really high. And it was very difficult to borrow money. Um, so, you know, you couldn't just walk into a bank and go, lend me two grand to start up an audiovisual exercise. So what did I do? I walked into a bank and said, could you lend me two grand to start up an audiovisual project? And the guy went, yes. Wow. <laughs> oh, was wow. Like, oh, God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> so we had to do it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it started from there. And then, I mean, the business aspects 
kind of evolved and developed and the art side and John's side evolved and developed and they kind of merged and cross-merged and subsumed and intermarried and this kind of thing. So you've got these two, uh, you know, continual processes unfolding organically. We were learning as we went along, you know, how it all worked. But at the time, very, very different scenario to now. You had fantastic physical distribution, worldwide distribution networks through Rough Trade and Rough Trade and the chain with no name. And so to get product into shops and stores was actually far easier than it is now. There were many more stores for a start. Mm -hmm. And the international cultural exchange was really dynamic. So you would have Japanese stores, American stores, you know, would all pitch in and, and take a punt, you know, and pick up a couple of copies. And, and it was a system that worked extremely well. Um, and so we're now in 82. So we've gone to see Rough Trade. We've set up the distribution. We're working on our first product. And that takes a year and a half to get going. So it comes out in December and it's called Feature Mist. Um, and it's a compilation that features some future really big names, but they were still names at the time. Well, again, a different climate. It was, it was very easy to approach people. I mean, like John rang Tony Wilson up of Factory Records and they had a long chat on the phone and John told him his basic ideas and Tony really liked them and so offered to help. So things like that, you were, you, there was no kind of um, system of, of, of obstruction in between you and whoever you wanted to get to, which there clearly is now. So you could talk to New Order, you could talk to Simple Minds and they were very open and all of them were very open and receptive. And another cunning wheeze we did was we went around uh, all the cultural embassies, at the uh, political embassies of um, countries in the Middle East or, or Far East. So we would turn up at the Iraqi embassy and say, oh, could we see the cultural attaché, please? And, and they would say, yes, come in. Now imagine, <laughs> now imagine trying wild. to do that now. Yeah. So, and, and the one that really bore fruit from that was Egypt where we got, we got access to Solomon Gamil, this amazing man, um, just an incredible talent who was just so generous and his family was just so wonderful. And of course, they wanted exposure in, in, in more exposure in the UK and, and other territories. So it was a, a very sort of happy meeting of, of minds and opportunities. Um, so, that, so, you know, with some imagination and some just kind of street chutzpah, we just kind of got it all sort of rolling really and people were very approachable a lot of the early releases on touch are are compilations various artists pieces what was it about compilations that were important for touch and for you and john at that time that's an interesting one i think um john felt that there was a really interesting way sort of almost a filmic way of linking tracks together with inserts and the inserts could come from our recordings from the radio or just little stuff we we kind of came across that could link the tracks in a, in a kind of almost a soundtrack way. And the idea of Feature Mist is that it, it is a film soundtrack. You know, that is, that is the idea. Now, we, we felt that there was so much um, variety, different styles of sound and music we wanted on, on these cassettes. We, didn't, we weren't ready yet just to deal with one particular artist on these releases. So it was an, a combination of different things. One was also access, which I've talked about a bit opportunity, but also that we didn't want to restrict any kind of um, 
styles of music or sound to any one thing at this stage when we were starting off. And how did you guys divide up who was curating these comps, who was choosing the artists? Was it a back and forth? Did you guys both have ideas and discuss? Was one person more involved in the the artist side and, and one person more involved in the art side? How did you guys divide up that? Aspect? Well, John was John was definitely and saw saw himself and sees himself as the editor. Um and so he would he would encourage a certain direction, let's say. But there was a team. There was also uh, Pani Charrington was there working with us on the visual side. She had access to various uh, musicians and bands in and around London and further afield. And, of course, Andrew McKenzie from the Hafner Trio, who was there, you know, from not quite at the beginning. I think John met him in a Virgin um, megastore in Newcastle where Andrew worked in the record, uh, at the record department. So, uh, and asked him to join this sort of group. Uh, and so Andrew bought his own sounds with him as well. So it was really a, a mixing pot. So, and Pani Charrington also went to uh, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, I think, Bangladesh, came back with loads of recordings, some of which appeared on some of the uh, later compilations after, like Meridians 1 or 2, I think, has got something called Afghan Rebel, which is an amazing recording. And there's one of a salesman in Tokyo, just brilliant street sounds, absolutely amazing, wonderful for linking tracks. And that was something we felt that no one else was really doing. So we were excited by that. And we put a lot of time into recording dumb shows off American radio, like God shows, you know. Mm-hmm. Preachers were great. Just the way they spoke was just fantastic. You know, such energy and such bollocks. It's great. And your first vinyl on Touch was in uh, around 1985. Is that right? That sounds right. right. Was it the same time as the first CD? When was that? Oh, that was 87, I think, the first CD. Wow. That was Solomon Gamil, the first CD. I forget which was our first vinyl. I can't remember what it was. Probably half the trio, I think. Very interesting that you started with vinyl so early in terms of the, in the inception of the label. Well, it was cassette or vinyl. I mean, it was a you know binary choice that you had, and the artist would come along and say, "Will you release my record? Not on cassette, please." <laughs> so that meant, you know, so that meant vinyl. Were you dubbing your own cassettes? Yes, me, me. Nice. That's why my brain is so mush fried. We got these. Uh, a one to there was one that was one to one and one that was two and you link them together so you had the master and then three ports and you would put three cassettes in you have the master and they buzz through at high speed and i used to do them all from home so all of the first cassettes were all done by me at home and that for the, those they were pretty big runs those early cassettes right what was i doing I must have been insane. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you. I was young. I mean, you you wouldn't put up with it now, but um, well, I wouldn't put up with it now. But when you're 24, 25, you know, you you do what you have to do, and the, and, the, and the economy was pretty clear. You know, as soon as you uh, farm the job out to somebody else, your costs just completely change, mm-hmm. and uh, you you have to be very careful not to price yourself out of the out of the market. But about how many were done of those, like like the first comp, how, do you recall the number? Yeah, Feature Mist was 5,000. Yeah, because wow. we had, yeah. 
Oh uh, my God. You were the, living next to that tape dubber. Yes. Well, they, uh, my partner at the time was, uh, works in book publishing and, and she just read all the time. Mm-hmm. She had to read manuscripts all the time. So it kind of worked. And the TV might be on or whatever. And I had other things to do, um, of course. And you could leave them for a bit. Yeah. I was not a slave to the slaves, but it was not far off. Not far off. Um, and then the, the, the other ones, I think we did, a thousand, we did a thousand of Meridians 1, I think. The one that really surprised us was Islands in Between, the music from Indonesia, which John recorded on a trip, on a field trip. Field recordings, because he had the Sony Walkman Pro. So he used that, did all the recordings on his Pro. Um, and we did a couple of thousand of those at least. That was amazing. Oh. So the first vinyl release was Halfler Trio Brain Song, 12-inch. Well, I was correcting that it was Halfler Trio. Yes. wasn't sure which title. Yeah. And that was also a thousand copies. You were doing uh, a lot of Halfler Trio sort of in the, in the mid-80s as well. Well, then because he was embedded in the, in the project, of course, he was inevitably, you know, the first solo artist we worked with. I mean, Solomon Gamel also. Uh, was uh, was alongside, but yes, um, absolutely, yeah, we did. And how long did Andrew McKenzie work at Touch or with Touch in terms of? With, that- yeah, with till ninety mid nineties, I think things were really changing by the by the early mid nineties. I mean, computers were internet, email, things were changing mm-hmm. a lot, you know, and there was a lot of um, economic change and technological change, and the way the artists saw themselves was changing as well. It, it was a very strange change, changeover. And also Chris Watson and Philip Jett came along around that time and Ryoji Akida, and then very slightly later, Christian Fenez. So in the 90s, you know, a different kind of type of artist maybe is, is coming along and going, you know, I've got this stuff. And you also changed in the early to mid 90s because you started a, a second label, right? Ash International. Yeah. yeah. With with Robin Rambo, aka Scanner. And I think it was again, it was uh, initially uh the the thought behind it was we needed a separate we need a separate label for scanner to operate independently outside this this touch structure, initially at least. And and the other thing was that touch just couldn't release more than it was doing for various reasons. And so we it, we kind of gave birth to this uh, naughty little sister, Ash International, whose whose main activity is to run up and down the street, ringing doorbells and then running away. That's that's Ash's job. <laughs> um, so and and to really go into some R and D territory that Touch couldn't do or didn't want to do. Uh, and, and we ended up working with Joe Banks, disinformation music from you know atmospheric recordings and outer space and that, that kind of thing with Joe and the, oh well there was there was all sorts. It was a it was much messier in many ways. And we did those compilations, Mesmer variations on a fault in the nothing and wow, look at the lineup on those. I mean I I dig my copy out and go, Crikey. They were fun. In the early days the approach to releasing stuff. I mean, I think you said it was also very cultural, like who was around and it was all independent. So when did you see that changing and the focus of touch narrowing a bit more? It's hard to say exactly when it was a process, of course, but what was changing was, of course, the computer 
an artist could be much more isolationist. Uh, Christian Fenez, for example, left his band as soon as he could to work on the laptop. You know, that's he said that in the interview, didn't he? Yeah. That's what he mm-hmm. wanted to do. The laptop became his band. Um, and there was a lot of that. And you could explore a lot more uh, in, in other territories and digital territories that you couldn't do. So Raiji Akita, Raiji Akita, for example. Um, so I think there was that kind of push. People were exploiting the technology. So we're looking then at the early 90s. So the in- email was, what, 93, really, when people started getting... When was the first laptop? Oh, that I don't it was know. roundabout, not far off that time. So people were suddenly realizing what they could do. And I think there was that was a big, a big switch over. But there was also international economic pressure was was changing you'd you'd had the housing boom now the housing boom meant that you couldn't afford to live in the squats anymore because the squats were sold off and converted into nice middle-class terraced houses for families so the area i was in which i i was i still lived there 1986 really changed uh the, the neighboring roads were full of artists squats and all sorts. And then within ve- a very short period of time, they were all sold off, done up, and now they're family homes. So that was an important part in driving people out from central urban locations. And rents started spiraling. So I think it's, a, again, a combination of all these forces that are forcing artists to rethink the way they do things. And housing benefit in the UK was cut. So people had to go out and you know, look for work. And as soon as you have to work, you, your time management issue becomes critical. Do you have the same energy, creative energies, if you've done a hard day behind a bar or, or whatever it is on a construction site? So, you know, things were changing, definitely. When things we, were becoming. When we talked to Nigel Ayers, mm-hmm. he was saying a lot of similar things. And, you know, of course, nocturnal emissions coming from that era of artists in squats and you yeah. know building their own world and not, and of course someone you worked with as well putting out some of the versions of some of the albums if i'm not mistaken we did drowning in a sea of bliss is the one i remember yeah fantastic album so but you 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 adopted cd's early on as well like you said 87 was the first cd well there was a huge push from uh, manufacturing companies, distribution companies to do this. And it, it, we, we, were, we were sold a, a pup in a way because the quality of the early uh, batch of, of uh, manufactured CDs was quite poor and they didn't last very long. And yet we were told it was perfect sound forever. The disc rot famously oh, yeah. from, from the, those early CDs. And this, this clearly wasn't true. And, and But people piled in and sold off their vinyl to shops like Record and Tape Exchange. They would get a, a pound, maybe, for a Talking Heads album, whatever, and they'd take that pound and do whatever with it or sell off their entire collections. And then, of course, 20 years later, bitterly regretted it. Um, but it happened a lot, I can tell you, and I'm guilty of, of some of that. Uh, there were space issues. If you were no longer living in a big house with five other people, you, you know, you ended up in a small apartment. And that's, uh, you know, as true today as it was then, for sure. Yeah. Massive issue now. What do you do with your records? So I think the, the drive to CD was pushed very, very hard. And I remember reading all these press releases promising stuff that just very quickly unraveled. 
fell apart. But they got their act together, and by not much later, eighty nine, you know, it, it was it was that they kind of rectified the technological problems with it, and you were pretty secure that that the fidelity was maintained. Uh, but of course, design it's there's not as much space, so it's not as interesting. And then you got the whole thing about you know the record sits on your lap while you roll a joint. And that whole kind of activity and 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 um, function for your thing for your record changed completely with a CD. It's, it just goes on the shelf. But you so, guys also worked around that in ways with booklets and different types of packaging. Yeah, we always have tried to. And uh, uh, the one that I really, the one that we really like at the moment is this DVD case. The recent ones that have come out in the DVD packaging. Mm-hmm. which are made in Poland by Monotype, they give John's photography much more room to, to breathe. Have you seen the, the latest series, the last sort of 10 records? They were at 2220. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. For yeah. sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. so they're, they're, they're actually a DVD case. And you can put, obviously, anything in it, booklet. Uh, you can put a DVD in it, of course, anything round and shiny, you know, fits in. So uh, we we kind of stumbled on those. And but in the past, the Nigel Ayres record, uh, that cassette came out in a in a computer cassette box. Can't remember what it was called, but it was slightly bigger, and you tucked the sleeve in behind the plastic sleeve that went over it. Um, no, I did not do that by hand. Thank God. Um, <laughs> Yeah, imagine. So, you know, we've always tried to look at alternative ways of, of doing things simply because we felt that just because something fitted on a record store shelf or fitted onto the, you know, the distributors into their bins didn't mean we had to do it like that. Whereas labels probably would feel constrained in some way towards fulfilling those those needs by the system. And you said for distribution through rough trade you went and set that up before you had your first release available yeah, or because, anything because we told them the lineup and the, the new order you know they just said yes you know there was i mean they weren't they had enough space they weren't going to say no to something like this this is exactly what they supported the only issue was how many really and advice on the distribution price that was really the only and that discussion didn't last very long and how long did you see that sort of boom of being able to do cassettes and, and vinyl and then CDs through Rough Trade? Rough Trade overextended, didn't they? And came a cropper with Rough Trade Inc. when they invested in San Francisco. So that all went horribly wrong, which was a great disaster. Now, what year was that? 90, was it? Bit, can't remember. But I remember I went to the meeting where Jeff Travis who came to the Touch 40 London nights just the other day, the other week, which was amazing to see him. It was where he had to deliver the bad news to all the labels that things had gone um, pear-shaped. And I was next to someone who you would not expect to burst into tears, and they were crying their eyes out because they basically lost all their stock, all their money, everything. Wow. And that that was in the 90s? Early. Early, yeah, I can't remember the year. You can it, it'll say on the somewhere. Rough Trade Inc. It was called, and they set up this big warehouse to do American distribution and overextended. It was a shame. It's, I mean, it's a great idea. It was kind of the natural way for them to go, 
but I don't know the, the detail of exactly what happened. But it was lovely to see Jeff and he came and he said, you know, you and I, we go back, back to the very beginning. So, you know, had to be here. It was great. That is great. Um, what, what did you do when, when Rough Trade collapsed? Did you have other avenues for distribution then or did you have to find something new? Well, we did direct to the uh, exporters for a while, but then along came wonderful Kudos Records who are just great. And we, yeah, 91, we were with Kudos. So there you go. So there's a, so Kudos came along. I think we were with Pinnacle and Kudos went, we're, we're, we're leaving Pinnacle. Now we're going to go fully independent. So will you come with us? So I went, yes, because someone says fully independent. That fits in with the whole setup. And the fact that I had a relationship with them already, you know, was very good and they were really reliable and they understood what we were trying to do. And we're still working very closely with them. So Kudos have been absolutely great. That's one thing about 40 years is you can have these long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. Touch has always maintained that it is not a label. It's more than a label. And a big part of that was different media like books or big booklets that came with releases. In fact, I believe it is it's the ritual release that has the hundred page book. Yes. Now, was that, uh, was that you and John together? The idea that you wanted it to be these, this multimedia thing, was that more one than the other? How did that, how did no, those that conversations was, go? No, that was very much John's, uh, John's impetus. My, my role at this time was really, how is this going to work? And, and John was much more the content, uh, the design, uh, so that was definitely uh, a much more clear cut demarcation of roles than it is now. Now there's much more cross cross bleed, if you like. Uh, we've we've both changed. I mean, when you're 24, 25, 26, you don't know very much, uh, and then when you're 64, like I am, you think you know a bit more. You, yeah, you learn you slightly <laughs> bit more, but not much more. Yeah, uh, and not all of it good, of course. Uh, some of it certainly but again it's this whole approach i think it's more to do with the attitude than anything else and the attitude we the way we see it is we're publishers and john is his role is as an editor and all the relationships we have with the artists and with the product and with the manufacturers and distributors is collaborative it is absolutely we get as much as we give and so when you have um, when you develop an organic relationship over the long term, like you do with, like we have done with Kudos, or like we did with our printers, we used to go round to the printers and stand there and go a bit more purple, please. Now you would not be allowed in now because they've got million-dollar digital printing presses with security guards outside. You know you could you can't do it anymore, but you, then you could develop those relationships and go. Have you got any recycled paper in at the moment that would look really good if you printed this on? And they would go off and look at their paper stocks. Whereas now they only keep the bare minimum of paper stock. So you want to select some nice with a vellum feel to it. No, we'll have to get that in from Japan. And your costs just, you know, way off, off the charts. So, but then uh, again, there was much more, um, a much more dynamic relationship between the manufacturers and, and us. We would, because I guess it was probably a bit more fun for them as well, rather than just churning out catalogs. So, you know, they got something out of it too. 
think a lot of people go into that work with, you know, creative people go into that work and probably the majority of it is just standard stuff. But when they get something like a hundred page booklet on various types of paper, maybe it's a pain, but it's also got to be kind of fun to challenge themselves. Well, these guys were professional printers and they wanted to, they wanted to do a good job. And we, we came along with a challenge and they jumped at it. I said, yeah, we can do that. Or we can't do that, or we can give it a go. And let's, let's on Friday afternoon, when we've done this big glossy catalog, let's run some sheets off for you and you can tell us, you know, whether it's working or not. So that kind of freedom and collaboration was just lovely. And we found a printer who actually I could walk to from my house, Dan Maynard Taylor. If you're still with us, Dan, thank you for all your time. Um, the Sprinting Company Limited. They were just fantastic. And with the plastic wallets, Hunter Plastics in Aylesbury, wonderful company, really great. And I was in touch with them not that long ago. I mean, certainly this century. And they, they were still working away. Oh, yeah. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? You know. Wait, are they the ones who screened the Meridians 3? Yeah. Um, wow. Mer Meridians 2 did the screen oh, okay. printing on yeah. that. Yeah, that was Hun Hunter Plastics. Yeah, absolutely great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was envisioning you doing all of those. No, not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No. <laughs> Imagine. Anyway, so and the same applies also this organic long term relationship, you know, with the artists. So, I mean, you, you become friends with, with them, Chris Watson and Carl Michael von Hauswolf and Christian Fenners, you know, amongst many others. But you also develop a much more um, collaborative uh, relationship over the work itself, hopefully, and you hopefully advise, guide, steer, sometimes push, sometimes deny, you know, their crazier ideas. Um, and and they, the respect builds up and they respond, you know, accordingly. And um, so we discussed a lot of that, the, the, the 90s part of touch and this group of people that you started working with that you still continue to work with to this day. Was there just a real energy going on in those mid nineties days when you started working with Christian, with Chris, with all these people that it's not that they're doing, I don't know what, there's something that kind of binds all of it together, even though it's quite different. Chris Watson's very different from Christian Fenez, who's very different from, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What was that, just that time like and that energy of working with a lot of these newer people? Well, obviously someone like Chris who had been around for a long time, but you started working with him in a new capacity. Well, I mean, that is a, that is a fantastic question because, of course, the three people that you've named, Christian was very slightly later. Christian had a relationship with Migo, uh, as it was then became later Editions Migo, um, or E-Migo, but, but Philip Jack had been working with vinyl since the 70s. Chris Watson had been doing recordings. He'd worked in TV. He'd been in Cabaret Volta, had a long career. They hadn't felt ready to pursue a solo career until around about that time. So they're maturing. They're becoming much more coherent about how to express their ideas. And we seemed to be the right people, uh, and we were in the right place at the right time, maybe. But I think they developed a relationship with us because maybe other labels wouldn't have given them that freedom, opportunity, breadth, 
of, of different ways of expressing them uh, what they wanted to do. Um, so with Philip Jack, very sadly left us this year. Um, found out that I thought we met in 1994, but actually we met in 1993, which is great because that would mean that next year it would have been, you know, an anniversary of of, of working with him. But the first record loopholes came out in '94, and Chris Watson's uh, "Stepping Into the Dark" was that '95. Christian was '99. So that so and Ryoji Akita was '95. His recordings that went to plus minus were '95, '96. Uh, that that did really well. That record did really well. That was a, a you know, Solomon Gamil remains or remained our bestseller. Interestingly enough, the Egyptian music it got into the BBC Music Library, and it was continually being used just for various little radio broadcasts mm-hmm. or or whatever. And so people would pick it up. You know, they'd hear it and pick it up. It's a great record. Another, um, it's a really cool one. Another person who came to touch in the 90s was Mika Venio. Mika. Again, I think um, he was really ready to pursue his his solo career. When was, I was talking to someone about this year, when was the first Panasonic record, Panasonic release? Let me look it up real quick so we have a date. Because Mika didn't, didn't feel ready to do solo work till later. So he came to us with Onko, the one with the cactus on the front. Yeah, the f- John's great photo. The first Panasonic was in 1994 on their own label. Oh, right. so, so Onko came out in... 97? Is that right? Yeah, so there you go. So he was... So again, you see, he was doing his thing with Ilpo. Wasn't ready yet to to do the, the, the solo work, and I think that's what you, they all have in common. They all had previous careers, they all had previous creative existences, sound um, activities, but didn't feel confident or ready or whatever, or they felt insecure and weren't just weren't quite there yet um, to express it in the way that they wanted to. And then with us, they found the right home, and and um, all all four are with us or would still be with us, if you see what I mean, if, if they could be. Yeah. Well, that's another thing about living so long and knowing people a long time is that some of them, you lose some of them. You know, Johan Johansson, you know, Philip Jack and Mika Vanyo and Peter Rayberg and uh, Zev, I mean, just a five that are particularly sort of close to home for the label. Um, so that's... Uh, that's not a good aspect of it, but you have to deal with it. It's part of the whole process. So, yeah. And as we always say, because of things like Touch and Migo and 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 records, we have their art forever. So we can yeah. always they can always be here in some capacity. In, in, in some capacity, and it kind of lives on because you you, you talk to someone like Richard Chartier. Here, here in LA, a Richard will tell you his who his great influences are. And Mika Vanya is the name that he you know will first say. And so you know it lives on in other ways as well. It's kind of like they've kind of genetically been subsumed into the next generation of artists, which is a really and Chris Watson and Philip Jack, I think, and Fenez, all, all of them, fantastic examples of how they can sort of mutate into the culture 
and, and get absorbed by other artists and come out in, in, in different ways. I hadn't thought of it like that before. It's a nice way of, of, of doing it, of keeping it going, yeah. Well, as we're speaking of, of people who passed, and we, we did an episode on this release, The Ghost Orchid, the EVP, what was it about that that interests you, and, and what, what drew you to that? The curiosity, that great word. Without curiosity, what do you have? Curiosity. I heard the first breakthrough recordings. The breakthrough was a seven-inch, came with a book, and it talked about the spirit world, recordings from the spirit world. And I went, what is this? Never heard anything like it. You know, acoustically, I'd never heard anything like it. And wanted to know where they came from. And every direction I went in, looped around in a circle, back to this, these seven inches, Rao Diva was on the seven inches, for example. It just went round and round. And I went, there must be a source. There must be somebody doing this who's, you know, around. And I found Raymond Cass. And Raymond Cass I found in the phone book. Remember the telephone directory? Wow. Remember wow. that one? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Cass, Raymond, and it was a number in the north of England, in Bridlington. Uh, in uh, which was then uh, East Riding of Yorkshire. And I called him up and I said, Raymond, you don't know me, but I've just heard about EVP. And I hear you're a practitioner. You seem to be the only living practitioner. Uh, you know, have you got any recordings? And boy, he not only sent me all his recordings, he sent me all his documents. He just basically put a huge amount of trust into me. Letters from the um, defence ministry here asking him about his work, unpublished, which I have, wow. and uh, other extraordinary documents. Now, his story is wonderful. He worked in hearing aid technology. And funnily enough, Jean-Marc Joe, who was head of marketing and strategy at Isotope yes. Software, he now works in hearing aid technology. Uh, I, I find that connection really interesting, that people who are interested in sound are really interested in hearing aid technology and how we hear and how to improve hearing. And one of his, Jean-Marc, is working on software individually created for the TV viewer to reduce tinnitus and increase the clarity of the sound coming from the TV. So tinnitus is an extraordinary thing that's been with us for centuries. The ancient Greeks talked about it, the ancient Egyptians, the Romans all talked about tinnitus. This is not a new modern sociological phenomenon caused by noise pollution. This has been with us, you know, for, forever, as far as we know. I digress, don't I? So <laughs> Raymond Cass in the f 1940s was working in hearing aid technology. And the UK government nationalized all the hearing aid companies. In other words, they made them, you know, for society and they reduced the prices and you could now walk into a chemist, get your ears tested and get hearing aid technology going to suit you. So he um he was working at the time in Germany and he got interned by the Nazis. He was in a civilian camp because he was a British citizen, they, they just fed him and let him, let him alone. He said there was a wire fence, but it was very easy to get out of. And there was a Polish camp next door 
and he used to go and date the ladies. And his wife, Polish lady, is still alive in their house in Bridlington, aged 90-something. So it's a great story. So Raymond's a storyteller. So he used his interest in, uh, in sound, hearing aid technology, frequencies, radio frequencies, and started exploring uh, after the war uh, as an amateur uh, EVP. And he found he could channel these voices from the spirit world uh, through, through his radio set, microphone, and tape recorder. It's a very, very basic technological setup. And some of the, the many of the recordings are on, are on the ghost talking. But what he found that was very difficult to, part of the story that's quite difficult to tell is that some of the voices would communicate him directly with about issues that he was going through at the time. So he had a bad foot. And some, one of the voices would say, how's your foot? Uh, I mean, does this not put, get the hairs on the back of your neck slightly? quivering i mean it's very weird now who was it some uk national newspaper the daily mirror that's right owned by robert maxwell robert maxwell paid a central london recording studio i forget which one a lot of money to try and replicate evp to show it was a fraud expose it as a fraud they couldn't do it they couldn't do it they tried everything, and you can't get that timbre, that quality, that acoustic, uh, I don't know the correct word, resonance, maybe? You couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. So Raymond was going, well, I could have saved you a lot of money and told you it's not a fake, but they didn't believe him. Anyway, so, and there were various people around who seemed to know an awful lot about it, but weren't doing it. But Raymond was doing it. And then Raymond very sadly died in, I think, 1990-something. So, but I, I had all these amazing tapes and, and put it together and called it the Ghost Orchid. And um, John came up with this amazing image on the front, which we, I think we did in silver, didn't we, in the first edition? Yeah, it's in silver. It looks, it looks fantastic. Very striking. And I wanted someone to tell the story, to narrate it. And who has got the best voice? in sound, in the world, Leif Elgren, whose vocal range is down a whole octave from any other human beings. And we did it in my back bedroom, and we could not stop laughing. It was like you with Peter Rayberg. We could <laughs> not stop laughing. And we had to stop. We just, it, took, it took more than one go, more than one day, more than one effort, more than one session, many sessions to edit enough where we weren't laughing so hard and um it was a very magical uh process putting it together and raymond was absolutely delighted because he felt that someone had taken him seriously and, and um paid paid tribute to the guys who had done it before you know raudiva and jurgensen and these guys and mickey von Hauswolf picked up the jurgensen thread and became curator for, for friedrich jurgensen's archive which he still is i believe yeah, we talked to him yes. about the EVP stuff and something that he's still very interested in. And of course, you bring up Leaf, you bring up Mickey. Are you a citizen of Algaland Vargaland? Do you have I'm a passport? The, I'm the first citizen. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I was Incredible. in the pub. I was in the pub in, in Stockholm with them. And they went, we've just, we're setting up this country. We've got this uh, funding to make a flag. And 
uh, passports and all of that. And I went, I'm in. And now I'm the UK ambassador for Elgaland Vagaland. And I've got various ministries around as well. I'm with with uh, Bada Hafa. I'm we're joint ministry of for siestas. We both <laughs> quite like siestas. They're quite <laughs> quite important things. I'm minister of the past. I've I've claimed the past for a ministry. So any questions about the past, you can come along to my ministry. Uh, so it, it's been absolutely great fun, and it it is of course serious. We are living in a world where you've got corporations bigger than countries. You've got boundaries which are just, you know, either there's a wall or barbed wire or they're just uh, an open field. And you've got some which are, you know, uh, effectively customs points where they just take money off you to get in. All sorts of different reasons the border exists. Um, but they feel very 19th century, don't they? they? They're created, a lot of them created under the British Empire who carved the world up in various states, appalling states, you know, which problems still unfolding from that, especially in the Middle East and, and in Africa um, oh, and in the Far East as well. Don't get me started. I majored in history. That's why I can <laughs> yeah. stop yeah. me now. Stop me now. Ministry of the so, past. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, uh, this whole questioning of borders and the role of countries, what's a country? What does it mean to be a citizen? You know, and, and uh, who says? Who says you have to have this to be a country? And and why can't we start our own? And there have been various attempts. And Yuri Geller bought an island off Scotland, and he started up his own country just very recently. Um, you know, it's, it's, if you've got money and you buy land, it's, it's kind of not the same as, it, as sitting in a pub thinking up great ideas and great concepts. You know, <laughs> I know I know who I'd rather be in the pub with, Mickey or Yuri Geller. Yeah. Mm, no contest. <laughs> <laughs> Although Yuri might pay for the drinks. <laughs> that is true. Well, I'm very excited you have diplomatic immunity then when you're here. Well, in, in, in myself I do, but no one else pays any attention to that, of course. And I still have to go through uh, customs here when I arrive. Although I do have global entry, so it's now done on facial recognition. Do you know about this? Yes. Oh, my God. It takes me 20 seconds to get into the country. And they go, Mr. Harding. Over here, please, and you go out. And it's so down. crazy. And all it was was just joining up with Global Entry and then doing a security check on you, and and you got it. Well, and Amazing. I think it's they, and they also want you know the new touch releases as well. I think that's the other. Well, yeah. Okay. Now, I'm sorry, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. So, I go to this office in uh, it's off Pico, somewhere down there. Anyway, it's not far. Passport office. Because I, I, I've got to uh, attach the global entry to my passport on the computer. So I go down. You're not going to believe what happened. I go down with my passport, with my ID, and with everything I need, documentation. And I wait for this guy. And this very, very pleasant chap says, come into my office. And I go in, sit down. And he starts. He says, so, so, so what do you do? Start telling him. And I, and I go, well, well, some of the artists we work with are, uh, are like, uh, you know, Christian Fenez and Philip Jack and Chris Watson. And he suddenly goes, Chris Watson? Yeah. What, the guy from Cabaret Voltaire? I go, yes. Amazing. He goes, I am Richard Kirk and Chris Watson and Steve Mallon's biggest fan. Amazing. I, I used to go to all the shows. <laughs> I have a really good 
dialogue with Steve Malander and Richard Kirk. Uh, Richard Kirk, someone we sadly lost relatively recently. Um, so, and this guy was saying, I know all about Chris Watson. I know all about his releases for Touch. I was saying, like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is absolutely, I'm in the passport office. It, I mean, it was just, it was so funny. I love it. And, I love it. And then uh, I got a new passport. And I had to go back. And I went, where's, I won't say his name. Mm-hmm. Where's so-and-so? Oh, he got transferred to another department. And they wouldn't give me his contact details. So oh. I, lost, I lost it. Well, I, I mean, I understand. Well, um, hey, if you're listening now, make sure to get in, t- right. get in contact with Mike yes. and say hi. Yes, to say Richard Kirk, Sandoz, all these meta things go somewhere on the file. <laughs> You'll That's find a it. Love, lovely synchronicity. It was lovely. And he was yeah. such a sweet guy. And he was so into it. It was just brilliant. You know, just brilliant. Chances of finding someone in any administration who listens to anything alternative it is amazing so that was that was just hilarious we had a great time and then right at the end he said oh i mustn't forget and then did the work (laughs) (laughs) right yeah yeah Yeah. you know a name that's come up uh, i mean obviously it's uh intrinsically entangled in touch as part of what touch is is john wozencroft and he handles uh you said editor but he also does a lot of the design photography i mean well, all, all of it and all of it unless stated otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, I, it's great because when, when things are going well, I can take all the credit. When things are going wrong, I can blame him. It's, it's the perfect relationship. It's a, it's a marriage. You know, we, we've effectively been married, uh, you know, since then, since when he told me this idea. And I thought it was just such a great idea. You know, this audio visual narrative going on over such a long period of time when a lot of it's sort of coded, embedded in. And there are little witticisms dotted around that you'd have to know were there, kind of funny. Oh, there's one that's, uh, do you remember the Hazard album, Wind? Yeah, yes, yes. I was listening to it before today. We listened to it today. Yeah. You're kidding. Gearing up. Uh, no. oh, okay. Oh, if you look at the CD, was it CD that you, you had the CD? Digital. Or was it streaming? Okay. Well, if you ever see the CD, look at the catalog number. And it's Ash, um, is it six point? Six, and he gave the A of the Ash little hat for the wind. (laughs) (laughs) A little little hat. So things like that, you know, if you've got your wits about you and you look really deep into the detail, there's an awful lot of coded stuff in there that's, you know, it's not very dark, but it's, it's fun, you know, and shows that we operate on lots of different layers and the, the jokes between us sometimes you know take a form take some kind of physical form or not necessarily the jokes but the little codes the coded language that any relationship develops over time sometimes appear in in, in the physical world um or on the website or somewhere like that which it's kind of keeps um keeps that aspect of it kind of rich it's, it's a richer experience in in some ways um our, our worlds are not very they can become very dry if you're not careful and we i Actually, so this this is sometimes you know this is a very very dry thing. We need we need more wit around. We need more color, more richness. It's it's very very dry, and and John's really good at responding to that observation from me. He knows exactly what I mean, and will and will adapt, or amend, or or develop something. Because artists, um, some artists aren't particularly good at framing, contextualizing their work. 
the the work itself might be absolutely top, just brilliant. And then you see their ideas for the imagery and you go, this could be so much better if you do this. And once someone trusts your reasons for saying that and doing it and showing you that it works better and why it works better, your trust levels start to incrementally you know, go up and up and up. So that's an important part of it. I think it's huge. And mm-hmm. I always say that it's so important when having a relationship with a label to for the, the trust to go back and forth. And when someone at the label may say, hey, I see what you're trying to do, it's, but it's this isn't it just yet. Taking that constructive criticism is, I think, yeah. the sign of just a great working relationship. Constructive yeah. criticism. In other words, you don't say this is a shit photo. Exactly. <laughs> um, you come up with an alternative. How about this? Um, I mean, like, for example, the, the, the photos that Phil Niblock sends in for his albums are just perfect. Absolutely perfect. I think he's, all his albums have been his photos. But most will now leave it to John to do. They, mm. you know, you get it. You know what I'm trying to do. Express that, you know, for, for the format that we're talking about. So, so that's, you know, absolutely critical in this continued narrative between the audio and the visual. Having done this for 40 years now, we are, we're always interested to talk to people who have put out records for that long and all the changing landscapes that have happened throughout those decades, especially now, you know, post 2000s on. How have you seen everything change and how has touch adapted to the drastic changes in the, you know, for lack of a better term, industry side of things? Well, the, the, you know, amazingly, the, the, the adapting hasn't been a problem at all because we've never welded ourselves to a particular tribe, scene, type of music. We were never a dance label, for example. You know, and they, a lot of them came unstuck later on because they, they overcommitted and type of music and couldn't, couldn't get out. We never felt we'd done that. We always felt, in theory, we could do anything. So with that approach, you don't get trapped and you don't keep hopefully saying the same thing over and over and over again and you end up in this echo chamber. We've tried hard not to get stuck. So I think we've been very, very, very flexible, nimble uh, and adaptable. So I think that that kind of might answer the structural issue. Um, and then, of course, also with that, there's only a certain amount you can do regarding technology distribution. They come at you. You know, if all of a sudden there aren't any record stores left, you can't go and open a record store. So you have to adapt and band camp appears and we adapt and sometimes we're on it and sometimes we're a bit slow. I mean, inevitably how it is. And sometimes an artist will give us a kicking and say, you should be doing this. And then we'll have a good look and do it. Um, so that that tends to be really not too big a problem. Um, the things that have really changed that have driven a lot of activity is technology. And one of the main areas that's benefited best most is field recordings, because you can now go into the wilderness with a very small piece mm-hmm. of equipment and come out with 24-bit 96 recordings. Whereas it wasn't that long ago before you needed a truck, a generator, a crew, and imagine the costs they all had to fly in. And of course, technology has also benefited from 
that type of technology and field recordings benefited from cheap air flights. So uh, the cheap air flights started to come in in the 80s, package tour of them or that you could fly somewhere for 100 bucks, 200 bucks. And then it became affordable to go to these far-flung places. Now, there was a, as a pub game we play with the artists. Uh, what was the first field recording ever used on a pop record? And it's, it's really good fun. It's really good fun exploring and going back through pop history and trying to remember, imagine where people actually went outside the studio and did a recording and brought it back into the studio. It's very, very rare, say in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, very rare. Uh, and then it gets more and more frequent uh, as you go on. So, did you did, have you come up with an answer for that question? Well, we've come up with some very early ones, 1961. I'm not talking about the musicologists recording straight right, right, in the yeah. 20s. Right, right. I'm right. talking about, you know, commercial music recorded in a studio and somebody says, "Oh, let's go and record the motorbike outside." Right. And then bring it up. That's what I'm talking about. And so we've got some 61, got some back to 61. And I mean, there's a big sort of game at the moment going on, isn't there? Who can find the earliest? Who can find the earliest heavy metal guitar riff? Who can find? Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it's the Kinks, and you really got me. <laughs> and then someone, Philip Jack, comes along and goes, "What about Link Ray?" Oh God! Right, so, <laughs> we can keep um, going. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can just keep keep yes. going. And and um, another wonderful game is first creative use of electricity in an art, in an art environment. It's fantastic because in the 19th century, all this domestic technology was developing. You suddenly had gas lights in your house, the telephone, all these things. But who thought first using electricity in a creative environment? And that's a wonderful journey to go on, historical journey to explore. Really good fun, that one. And there were some people in the 1880s, 1890s using it on stage as part of their art. Really amazing. So a lot of fun tracing things back to their original sources and who really set that spark going and set the template. Fascinating stuff. Oh, absolutely. And it shows, you know, any artist who claims something as proprietorially as being, I founded this or I discovered this, is you know, bullshit. There's always someone before you. You know, we are, it's a synthesis. It's a, it's a you're inspired by or you've somehow absorbed something into you. Yeah. We just recently had a wonderful discussion with Jim O'Rourke, and he mentioned that early on in his travels, you were someone that he would stay with. Do you recall those meetings? Yeah, uh, Lizzie's just walked in because Lizzie was in the house with Jim. And we at the time, we had the most fascinating discussions about cinema, music, about food. Mm -hmm. he, he, he would eat everything in the cupboards. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and Scott Walker, of course. Lots of discussions about Scott Walker. Yeah. And it was just fantastic fun. And he was just such stimulating, sublime, generous company. And uh, we've been friends ever since. And uh, we spoke about the show very recently because I sent him some uh, little memory jogs about that period. And he came back with some for me. And we kind of went back and forth with. Um, Ah, I should have mentioned that on the show, he said. Or, oh, I thought I did mention. Oh, no, maybe I didn't. And then we went into when Mika released his first record and that kind of stuff that, that um, may have come up in the show, I think. Um, 
but it's a great show, really entertaining. And he he's just such a good talker as well. Does brilliant. Oh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. oh, yeah. That, he's one of the best. When, 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 when did he come over? When was, when was that time that he was with what you guys? What year was it? Uh, 97? Late nine. Ninety-eight. He was intrigued by Scott Walker. He's moving on to all this. I mean, when did Scott Walker okay. move on to his? Yeah, the more experimental. His more experimental was that ninety-eight. Somewhere around there. Anyway, mm-hmm. that was what was. Yeah, yeah. Tell you another great story. Ryoji Ikeda used to come and stay, and we watched a movie called Tokyo Story, which is a fantastically a, a very well-known Japanese film from the 50s. If you haven't seen it, it's wonderful, wonderful movie. And Ryoji hadn't seen it. And he sat there afterwards in like complete silence. We're going, wasn't that amazing? Just fantastic. And he went, this is just like my family. You know, he wow. was just completely, he'd never wow. seen it portrayed, you know, in, in that way. And all the things they talked about that, you couldn't talk about in a Japanese domestic environment. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was stunned. Because I mean, don't forget, these guys were young then. These guys were still pretty young. Um, I mean, Jim's always been young, hasn't he, really? <laughs> <laughs> Someone sent us a great uh, picture of him in, what year was that, Graham? I mean, it was like the early 90s. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember. But it was exactly just yeah, this year. great, just youthful picture of him, just with well, all so, this gear, so fresh. Before London, I saw him in Chicago when he was at home, living with his parents. I saw his bedroom. Oh wow, the original steam room. <laughs> the original steam room. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We, we hung out in in Chicago for a bit. So that was before. So that must have been ninety six, maybe, maybe even earlier. Well, I looked sure. and, and Tilt came out in 95. Oh, really? Yeah. So maybe it was 96 then. Yeah. Well, you've, you've worked with a number of artists that we have talked to on the podcast and a more modern one, at least in the 2000s and on, is someone that Gray introduced us to is Jacob Kierkegaard. Okay. How did you end up getting in contact with him, discovering his work? Okay, so I, I can only think of him as Jacob. Because, uh, oh, oh, oh yes, sorry. That was course. my, yeah. my That's complete right. fault. Uh, yes. Jakob Kierkegaard. Yes. So Jakob Kierkegaard, I forget when we first actually met, but he was around. He, he knew Mickey, for example, and it may well have been Mickey who introduced us and said, why don't you send that record to touch and say, would you release it? So I think it started like that. And in fact, what happens now is that it tends to be artists who introduce you to other artists. So it was, it was Christian Fenners who introduced us to Oren Ambarchi, for example. You know, so that's, and there you've got the trust factor immediately kicks in because it's a known quantity. You know, they're not going to recommend somebody silly. And, and Jacob was doing, at the time, was doing the, um, what was the first one we did? I forget now. Eld Fjol with the Geo. That one's so cool. Yeah, that one's so Great cool. Great record. Still one of my favorites that he's done. I, I really love it. Um, so he came along with Eld Fuel. We 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 had a really close connection, still do with with Sc- Scandinavian artists, and the the majority Iceland, Norway, uh, Sweden, and of course Finland, Mika. But we weren't really working with anyone from from Denmark, uh, I believe. So he kind of fitted a 
a jigsaw piece in, in, in the geographical puzzle. Because um, they are actually quite different, even though these countries obviously have very, very common threads. They have quite different histories. And uh, they're very proud of their their own histories, and and so you get their stories, you know. And the, the Danish stories are not like the Swedish stories, and they're not like the Norwegian stories. So you know, he was bringing something else, another narrative to the table, which is always great. And he's always good company. And he did an album with Philip Jack, which was just great. They did a live show at so, a festival, so good. And Philip sent it to me. And went, you've got to do this. This just worked. And we put it out within weeks. It just, we just rammed it out. Um, and people still pick it up. It's just a great listen. And so that, that was that collaboration as well we'd done. So yeah, so it evolved from there. Um, and as the, as the world changes, the market changes, people get more successful maybe or less successful or some of them go and start families and check out for a bit and, it's always changing. And Jakob would go off and do his own thing. And then a few years later, would come back. And we did um, Conversion. Remember the one with the string section on it? Oh, yeah. Just so a cool. great record. Just a great piece of vinyl. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, it's always fluctuating and people are appearing and then reappearing and disappearing. And, you know, you never know. It's good for us. Keeps us on our toes. We well, yeah, you have like we've discussed many artists who you've worked with for many years and sometimes they go off and do records with other labels and then come back to touch. And I, I just assume that's just how you guys all work. And there's no, well, it, yes, they're free to do what they like. Of course, we, we might strongly advise them not to do something and then they'll go and do it anyway. <laughs> and then years later we can go, I told you so. I told you you shouldn't have done it that way. And they go, yeah, you were right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but it's important that they find out for themselves. It's, sure. It is really important. And mm. artists don't really ever grow up, which is also great. They have the childlike curiosity and enthusiasm, which brings you also new rich things because you, you can often get a bit bogged down in doing the stupid business and administration, all that kind of stuff. And you forget what it's really you try not to forget, but sometimes you can't help it. You can get very uh, overwhelmed by all the official stuff that you have to do, especially as you get bigger, you know, especially as you grow. And we really had a, a growth spurt in that in the 90s, around that time that the artists we were talking about came along, Ryoji, uh, Chris Watson, Philip Jack, Christian Fenez, were all selling, you know, relatively decent numbers of records. So we were, we were growing, you know, alongside, alongside them. Uh, and with that, you then have to bring in various business practices that you just have to do, you know, legally required to do for whatever reason, like, like sales tax and crap like that. And it's very, very time consuming. We've talked a lot about, you, you know, the, the, the 90s era of artists you worked with and, and that you still continue to work with. But touch, as we've said, plenty of new stuff coming out always. What are some yeah. of the artists right now that you're excited about? Obviously, you obviously everyone you're working with you're yes. excited about. So no offense to anyone if if someone is left out, but give us a couple new people you're excited about. That's one. Yeah. Oh, there Jim you Haynes. Go. Jim Haynes, okay. friend of the so, podcast. Yeah. Uh, so get, yeah. about eight years ago, there's always a story attached to that to, with me. Sorry. Um, about eight years ago, Lizzie, who's just gone shopping, got a job here in LA. She's a writer. She got a job here in LA. So we. I found myself spending a lot more time here in LA. And therefore, I started to meet people who either knew about Touch, knew what Touch was, found out I was here and said hello. 
that's the kind of what actually happened was that I met two or three people who opened doors to whole new subcultures within LA. So I met Richard Chartier really early on, and he introduced me to a ton of people. And I met a guy called George Jensen. Oh, yeah. I used to work with George. Oh, my God. What a guy. <laughs> what a heroic figure. So George said, will you do a show on Patreon? I went, you mean a radio show? He went, yeah. Said, Great. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And then he came back to me, no, 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 don't, no, no, don't do a show on Patreon. I said, what? He said, do it on Dublab. You should do it on mm -hmm. Dublab. So I then met Ali. I call him Ale. I call him beer, okay? Ale, Alejandro Cohen. Dear, sweet, ale, the loveliest man. And he offered me a show on, on Dublin. So I have a radio show on Dublin. So I immediately said, would you like to come on my radio show to all these artists, some of whom I didn't know that well, and some of whom I didn't know really well. Or if an artist was visiting LA, I'd get them on the show. Then COVID happened and it became all recorded. But it was all live in the studio, or, or a lot of it was live in the studio. I built up a decent archive. You know, which is all there. So I met certain people who just opened doors to all sorts of other other things. And that's just snowballed. So I now work with all sorts. I mean, Jan Novak, Robert Crouch, those guys, you know, wonderful guys, and um Gabby Strong, and I mean, you know, the list, there's a there's a list, but they're all doing their own thing. They're all doing something interesting and different. So I'm I'm kind of plugged into that. And I can offer, I could say, you know. Would you like to do a release with us? And we've got different outlets that they can they can work with. It could be a tapeworm, could be a cassette for the tapeworm, uh, it could be a, something really mad for Ash International, you know, it could be a touch release, or it could be something for touch radio, depending on what the nature of, of the work is and what they want. It could even be live. And so I have been putting on some shows as well, I've done some shows at Coaxial. Uh, I really love going to Coaxial, it's just great. Um and uh, Zebulon, and uh, then we did the Touch 40 at 2220 Arts, mm -hmm. which was great, but also expanding up to the Bay Area and up to Portland and Seattle, where I've got old friends uh, and people I've known for decades and decades and doing stuff there. So so it, it's, not, it's not a part of the world I'm not familiar with, and I was able to build on relationships as well as create lots and lots of new ones. So the answer to your question is, there's a whole almost bottomless pit in California and the West Coast of these things. And then somebody will appear from New York or go to New York, like Zachary Paul moved to New York. Obviously still, he's a label artist, you know. So, yeah, it's great. And Barna Hafa, who's in Asheville. So it's oozing around the continent <laughs> i love that what? george was uh was a big connection point for you he and i we used to work at yeah. the same record store for for years so i spent a lot of time we used to dj brunch together on sundays i spent a lot wow. of time uh with george so he's a, a wonderful guy i'm happy to hear yeah, him sweet get a shout yeah, out. He, i mean he didn't he he kind of immediately recognized that uh although he personally wouldn't necessarily work with me he knew exactly where to put me <laughs> he's he very good where at that. i would flourish yeah <laughs> So that was a joy. And then, of course, much later, but Carl Stone, who's since become a friend and, you know, he's done a touch live show at Zebulon, for example. So, you know, a different generation, of course, with a, with a massive history behind him. So, you know, you never know who you're going to bump into. You just never know.
So what is the newest touch stuff out right now and what is coming out imminently? Imminently, we have the second album by Cleared, two guys from Chicago, Stephen Hess and Michael Valera. And that is out towards the end of September on CD. And in fact, today is pre-order day on Bandcamp. We have uh, new albums coming from Anthony Moore, which is his live piece for Touch 40 in London. Anthony Moore, 71, Brit, was in Henry Cow, Slap Happy. Do you know those outfits? He worked closely with Pink Floyd on a couple of albums. Um, A really fascinating guy. And he was professor of the Tom Meister class at Cologne University for years and years and years, and recently came back to England and uh, settled down in England. Uh, So we have a really good connection with him. So that's about to go into manufacturing. So we're looking at later this year, that one. Next week, Black Sea Vinyl, two times 10-inch limited edition is coming out. Occasionally, we do revisit old works. It's not something we want to do because it's taking up resources that could be put into new work. That's the golden rule is if it's new, it wins. But if something's been out of print so long and it's clearly got further life, where we can, uh, we will. So Fene Sakamoto Sandra came out on 10-inch vinyl uh, a year ago, a bit more than a year ago. And so this is another example of, of that process happening. I'm very, very happy to hear that one of my favorite Fennis records is getting a reissue so people can can hear it because Black Sea is actually one that uh, Connolly had turned me on to many years ago when it initially came out. I certainly first heard that at your house. Yeah, it's one of our favorites. Mm-hmm. And still... I can't, I can't think of many artists who have that consistently high album output. It's astonishing, the quality. I mean, Agora mm-hmm. is just a, an amazing oh, piece Lord. of work. It's incredible. Yep. And of course, you know, he said, we asked him, you know, uh, is is he working on a, the follow-up record? He said, well, Mike wants me to be working on the follow-up record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, can, I, I can tell you he is, even though he doesn't know it yet. Awesome. Great. Good. Good. That's what we want. No, he is. He, he's, yeah. he's, he's aware. He needs a, he'd like to get an album out next year. He's, he's well aware of it. And with, it's interesting with Christian because he's very happy to start again. He'll throw lots of ideas into the pot, experiment, do some recordings. Ah, it's not working. He won't keep fighting, you know, and 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 he will he will just clean his brain out and go wait for new input. So it can take a while, but it's always boy, is it worth it? Absolutely. Well, this has been incredible. Now, what's the best? Give us a concise way for everyone to follow touch if if they're not already what are the best ways to keep up with the new releases to keep up with touch radio give us give us the rundown right now for the uh pre-order of the fenez black sea double 10 inch vinyl all i've done today so far is made it available on Bandcamp, and the number of Bandcamp followers increases steadily our twitter feed is consistent Facebook, I ignore, can't cope with it. We have a newsletter, which is great, which is actually probably the most, the best go-to source is the Touch newsletter. And you can sign up on the website. It's on the front page, touch33.net. 
really, I think the market is around. It doesn't really matter whether you Instagram stuff or or tweet it or Bandcamp. As far as I can tell, it, it, there seem to be seven, eight thousand people who seem to have one of those bases covered. Maybe ten thousand. I mean, hard, hard to say exactly, but it seems that one of them you'll find out. You know what's going on. All right. But if you're if you're hardcore touch devotee, you're probably already there. Exactly. Yeah. This is for anyone just discovered. But again, like we said, we've talked to so many different artists related to touch and on touch and discussed records yeah. related and on touch. So if you haven't done it, do it now. Their first question would be, how can I hear? How can I listen to all this all this stuff? And Bandcamp is probably the best library around at the moment. So we are touch333.bandcamp.com. Of course, we'll have links for all of this on the show page so everyone can just go and click right. on that there and right. all that. Well, Mike, this has been really thank cool. You. This yes, has been so much fun talking you. to you. And everyone, go go, just blindly pick a touch release. There's The, the variety is is there you can you can just pick one at random and it might not be what you're expecting but it's absolutely going to be worth your while you're going to get something from really cool egyptian music to a really cool electronic record to anything in between so bees and evp absolutely right. go right. check it out well it's been great thank you really lovely intelligent warm questions really appreciate that you've been listening to noise extra Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artist for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.